Hi everybody and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co-hosts, father and son duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. The word elite can be overused in society nowadays, but today's guest is without doubt elite. As people know, the British Special Forces are the best of the best, and our guest today served as a Sergeant Major in the Special Forces, spending 22 years in the organisation. With that being said, we're excited to welcome Gary Banford onto the Golders podcast. Gary is one of the UK's most experienced combat leaders, being involved in many strategic operations and missions around the world. He's now a director of Duratus UK, where he helps individuals and groups optimise their performances and create high-performing teams. He's also the host of the Duratus Mind podcast, which is well worth a listen. We're really excited to have Gary with us today, and we know you're going to enjoy this episode. Gaz, welcome, and thank you for being on the Golders podcast with us today. Uh, pleasure to be here. Looking forward to where this goes, gentlemen. So for us, Goldust is about sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people for the greater good. What does Goldust mean to you? I saw, I spoke to Keith about this, and it's funny that you asked that question, actually. I didn't know that was going to be the, the first question that comes out because, again, we'll probably go into this a little bit later, but one of my old jobs actually was um, the lead recruiter talent ID for uh, UK special forces. And um, I used to say to people that there isn't some magic gold dust that we can sprinkle on these people to get them to where they want to be. It's, it's got to be something they want themselves. So I guess I've always had a bit of a bias towards what that actually means to me because of the context of what I was taking, but we're in line with what you're using it for. Um, you know, I, I, I like what you say. Ultimately, you know, there's some absolute golden nuggets of information out there. And, you know, sometimes it's about absorbing as much as that as we can. So if there's people that have got experiences, that have got knowledge, wisdom, call it what you will in certain areas, then surround yourself with those people and, and try and get some of that gold dust off them. So, uh, yeah, I like that. Well, I like it because that's why we've got you, you on here today as well. <laughs> so you mentioned then about recruitment and talent ID for the special forces, but just to give us a an overview, what what was your life like and what did you do in the armed forces? So I guess, I guess my really normal, I mean, how long have we got? A really normal upbringing, actually. Um, great mum and dad very stable home, um, you know, lived in the Midlands, couldn't live any further from the coast, actually, if you tried. So stick a pin in the centre of England, and that's exactly almost within about a mile and a half of where I live. So um, 
which is interesting to where I end up going. But um, I was always, I love sport. I love competition. Um, I would never have said I was overly competitive. I just loved and thrived. I was actually never especially talented in any one field. I was really broad in my experiences. So um, again, that, I'd say that's key. Um, I, after college, um, I did my A-levels and I just needed a challenge. I had a spot at university that I was intrigued about, but it wasn't a big enough drive. And for, for whatever reason, I was really seeking an extra challenge. And, and that challenge for me um, was, was the military. And again, when, when I looked at the challenge of joining the military and some of the experiences, the adventure, I was definitely seeking adventure at that point in my life, 18-year-old uh, man. You know, I, I, I chose and I selected the Royal Marines. Now, for me, why is that significant? Well, significant. Well, it's significant because it was the biggest challenge that I could see within that domain. Now, I, I'm not comparing it to any others. Well, I guess I am, but it could have been the Parachute Regiment. Again, I'd put those two organisations now absolutely on a par. But, but for whatever reason, I was drawn to the Marines and that kind of um, organisation. And I, my local regiment you know, would have been the easier option on many levels, um, uh, but I didn't do that. And I, and I took a bold step and I learned from that experience. I joined the Marines, um, enjoyed a brief career there. Um, again, a number of experiences, operations, uh, but nothing that was really gripping me. And then the Twin Towers attack happened in 2001. Um, and for me, that was a real pull, a real motivator to try and push myself further. If I'm honest, nothing that I was going to do within the Marines I felt could have impacted that abhorrent event. Um, and I felt a real drive to try and help that situation as ridiculous as that might sound now, but that's, that was my driving motivator to go and volunteer for special forces. And, and that's where I went. Um, I'd only ever heard horror stories about people that were unsuccessful with the process of selection. Um, um, I knew one of one other person that had been successful out of dozens and dozens of people that I knew had tried. Um, but it didn't put me off. And I went and had a go um, and I was successful. I was successful first time. I, again, would still never put myself as a physical specimen and athlete. I was just, you know, and we'll talk about some of these qualities. I was just very driven and motivated for that particular goal. Um, that put me into a career within Special Forces 2003 um, until a couple of years ago now, um, where experiences that I was exposed to operationally were just unbelievable and put me on this exponential growth you know basically a, a channel to the moon really with regards to the number of experiences that I was able to have um and and I, and I learned and the whole ethos of those organizations is one of, of always learning and growing so again um, I promoted throughout that from again the very lower ranks right up to sergeant major um, and as you said there, I, I, I did finish as the recruitment lead for that org, the whole organization, certainly the senior recruiter. And I learned a ton of things there. Primarily what I learned, especially as the job before as representing my organization in that role was um, how much I got fulfillment from coaching and mentoring others um, to achieve what it was that they wanted to achieve. Up to that point, my career had been very, very team orientated, but also I was ticking a lot of my own um, boxes and, you know, 
some of those goals were quite selfish, if I'm honest, but I, I then realized how much uh, fulfillment I could have from helping other people on that journey. And, and that's now what I do. I, you know, I, I, I've got a company, my own business that um, mentors, very, you know, sports people, senior execs, all kinds of business leaders in optimizing what they do as leaders, as, as workers and as teams. So um, yeah, so that's, that's a brief canter through, I guess. Well, it's quite comprehensive. Uh, you partly covered my question, Gaz, because uh, you mentioned about being motivated and driven whilst going through the training process for Royal Marines and then selection for the Special Forces. But what would be the typical character traits of elite Special Force operatives? Yeah, that's a good question. It's one that um, I work with organisations and teams on. Um, Unfortunately, it's not a simple answer, but um, I was fortunate enough a few years ago now to when I was towards the end of my career, because um, I'd spent a lot of time thinking about this and the organization spends a lot of time thinking about what it is that we're actually looking for. Um, you know, where do they live? Where do they exist? Where, do, where you know, where are these talent ID? Where are these talented pools? Um and there's a ton of traits that we could list and whether, and again, I was lucky enough to go over to um, Philadelphia actually and work at, um, out of Wharton University, again, one of U America's um, highly highest regarded universities and, and think about these problems with some of the highest performing teams and organizations in the world from CL Team 6 from to CIA to um Google, NASA uh, operatives were there. So all these organizations coming together and say, what is it that you're looking for? Well, as it turns out, when you list down all the characteristics that we're all looking for, although our jobs were very different in some ways, we're actually more often than not looking for the same character traits. And, and there's a number that rise to the top. One of the, the, the kind of three that I would lean heaviest into, let's say, um, self-disciplined individuals so you know the military early days my marines experience that that taught me to be who i was through discipline they disciplined me to get they had to chop all my edges off this rough rock that joined one day they had to polish that up and um, they did their best um, but that they did that through discipline and you know we can talk about that in some detail if you like but it was Afterwards, when I joined the organization and then being in an organization like Special Forces, nobody joins Special Forces and wants to try and change that organization. You need to be the self-disciplined person to exist and to want to add to that organization. You know, it's the organization that is um, the high performing team as such. So self-disciplined people that are self-motivated to, to get done what needs to be done. There is a ton of uh, resilience amongst those people it'll be a, a, a trait uh, that we that comes up time and time again they've all faced challenges that is one of the key things preparedness to face a challenge and to and to go after something that sometimes they don't even know how it's going to to end up but they're willing to go and try they're willing to go and be knocked down they're willing to pick themselves up to learn to get the feedback and to move on uh, so that resilient attitude is um always high and also i would say another strong contender would be the ability to manage stress so stress to me stress to you can mean different things but what i'm talking about is situations where 
we're highly aroused. Again, we're we're not sure where this is going. Our emotions are being um, triggered, and we've got to try and control that. Well, that you know, we need that in abundance because challenging situations, um, experiences are going to push these people. So, you know, honestly, Keith, there's there's a ton, but those three: self discipline, uh, ability to manage stress, and, and resilience are right up there. It's interesting, Gaz, that they're all mental traits. So they're all things that you didn't mention, nothing about physical ability or anything around being strong or fast. It was all something that brain training, I guess we could say. And with that, were they, were they things that you think, I know you mentioned with self-discipline that, that helped you with the Royal Marines going in there and developing those, but those other traits, were they things that you had growing up or did they develop massively through being in the military? Yeah, so nature versus nurture, right? Um, so the boring answer is it, it's going to be both, isn't it? But to what to what level now? Again, I'm always keen for people to understand that my upbringing was very, I think, very average, very typical for whatever that looks like. To obviously, there's extremes to everyone's uh, life, but my, my very, very average, and there was no military experience. Now, my, I was a competitive sports person from a relatively young age. I competed at swimming from maybe 10, 11. So I was. I was, um, and, and I, again, my the list of sports that I competed at was abroad, you know, not non ever to the highest of standards, but I competed abroad, and I love that. And I think, again, I've reversed engineered this recruitment kind of mindset of what is it we're looking for. I, I think those experiences, those um, that ability to throw myself into a challenge, to go and get the feedback myself. Um, is a critical factor. So people shirk feedback. Now, a competition where you're going into a contest and it's on you, whether it's you as a team or whether it's you as an individual pursuit, it's, it's, it's the feedback that you're going to get is going to give you absolute accuracy as to how you've performed. And I think we should be seeking that. I think that's something that people should pursue. Um, and I think that's something that um, I got in abundance. Now, those organizations that I've spent a lot of time in also throw that feedback at you in abundance. You know, you turn up day one in the Royal Marines and you are, I was massively out of my depth like so far out of my depth i was i was um crawling trying to keep up with people um on this this exponential growth that was needed from turning me into a young spotty teenager into you know into a man really and into a, a soldier in effect and there was a great deal of change that was required there and they just threw experiences at me i talk all the time to people about um what it takes and experiences times a thousand equals experienced. And if you want to be experienced at something, you need experiences. You, there's no shortcut to that. You can read about other people's, you can choose great mentors and coaches and they can, they can help and they can make some difference, but nothing will compare to getting your own experiences. So I, I grabbed experiences um, by the handful and just, learn about you know got grew that self-awareness um you know know thyself as socrates says i i i grew and, and challenged myself as as um 
as much as I could. Now, was I doing that consciously? No, not, not initially. Um, uh, I was very much, I thrived on, uh, you know, I, I know my strengths now much better than I did then. I, I obviously like to compare myself to others. Now, I've got an older sister, you know, there's four, nearly four years between us. So growing up, I lost everything. I was, I was happy with losing. I was never going to beat her up to a certain age. Um, at anything we tried because of that age gap. I was pretty comfortable with that. Um, but I still love to play. I still love to challenge. I still love to compete. And I, get, I think I learned a lot of that through my younger days. And uh, I'm smiling because um, even as a, a seasoned operator, I lost quite a lot. And um, I, can, I can live with that. And I, but I, you know, I'm one person, I'm someone that, you know, what I say thrives on feedback. I think I am. And I enjoy the feedback that you get from the win or the loss and then uh, using that to, to then progress if you wish in whatever it is that you're doing. Really interesting. I'm going to change the subject a little bit. So special forces in the UK, there are two different types, so to say. So we've got the SAS and the SBS. What differences and similarities are there between the two? Yep, no, brilliant. Um, more than happy to cover that. I mean, there's 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 some minutia detail that I won't be able to go into, but you know, generally, this is all stuff that's open source. Um, Ninety percent commonality, actually. So ninety percent they are identical. So the um, SAS is ever so slightly larger in numbers um, as an organisation. Um, versus actual tactical operators. They're, they're marginally larger, but um, organized in the same numbers of, of squadrons, so to speak. Um, they have a... Um, the word special forces, I think, miscommunicates what it is that these organizations are very good at. These organizations are very general in their skill sets because of the broad nature of operations that they're being asked to do. They're, they're special in the way that um, they're afforded um, extra risk and they're afforded by government and by the MOD to go and do what it is that they need to do. They're special in the sense that they're funded much better per person than the, the general military, but the, the, the skills that they have are very general and you know not very specialist at all. The specialist skills that each organization has, Hereford, um, has a, has has the owns the free fall capability. Let's just say that. So they um, they are the specialists and they're the lead in that field. Um, Paul um, are the specialists in lead in the diving realm. So what I'll say is both of those skills and um, well, Paul can free fall as as uh, you know, teams of groups and people that can free fall um, as well. So that's why I say there's very little difference. Um, all of those things are skills that they're, they're merely insertion methods to get to where they need to go. The, the, the actual job, the business of what happens is common across all, all units. They're just merely means to get there. So should a certain operation require one of those part, particular skill sets, then um, if it, let's just say if it was a, a you know, let, uh, requiring a dive insertion, let's say, well, clearly that's going to go to pool, but these are few and far between. Most operations, we plan for various different options. And so the, the differences are very, very minor, actually. Do you work together 
And when I say, do you work together in terms of training, in terms of the general day-to-day, you do things together, or is it a little bit separate where the SAS are here and the SBS are there? Both. So, um, Again, it's, it's, it's difficult to go into too much detail. The, the training, um, there's cross-training throughout. There is cross-training amongst UK special forces. There's cross-training against American special forces because that's how we develop and we grow. We, 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 we're creating diversity of thinking there. We're creating diversity of options and training, actually, and how to develop our individuals. When it, you know, On all aspects, we're, we're cross-training like that. So, yeah, absolutely. And we're challenging each other on, on various different methods and uh, problems and how to solve problems. So, you know, that's, that's absolutely welcome and courage. Operationally, yes, too. Um, I've got you know, lots of experiences earlier on in my career where the teams were very mixed, actually um, more recently they've been working um, separately on operations and they they tend to have different areas of operations again i'm not going to go into that detail but um, there is also always this um, uk response to a, a short-term situation let's say i don't know a, a hostage is taken in in some part of east africa let's say um, well there is a there is a, a rule monitor that there is a uh, a shared who's on standby for that particular operation and, and depending on who's on who's on watch so to speak at that time we'll get the lead on that operation so no operations are shared around um there's so much commonality is and, and this one of the questions that people often ask is their rivalry yeah there's there's a really healthy rivalry you know and you know that that i personally see that as a good thing again for someone that seeks feedback these organizations seek feedback and well having a highly competent rival you know my my uh, when i was i was the recruitment lead for the the sbs um, my competitor was the recruitment lead for the sas it's a tough competitor right it's a as a brand as an organization to go up against that's a pretty big challenge i, I enjoyed that challenge it wasn't something i should we have to made a, make ourselves more attractive than one of the sexiest brands on the planet for a certain group of people, you know, right? You know, I, I myself grew up, I would have loved as a young man to have joined the SAS. That option was there. You know, I could have chosen that as, as my career developed. I, I chose for various reasons to go off in a different, um, slightly different um, trajectory. But, you know, so I understand that and I can communicate that to people. So no, it's, uh, there's, there's common ground more than anything. Now you speak about experiences, Gary. Yep. But when you personally have been thrust into Irish situations, what sequence did you follow that kept things stable and safe for you? Yeah. So there's a number. There's a number of things that I'll say. There is a number of times. And so we, you speak about training. You, th- you, we, we just spoke about do we cross train? And so the purpose of all of our training is to prepare ourselves as well as possible for the situations that we're going to face okay so now the, the situations that special forces are selected to go and face are the ones that normally are the most volatile uncertain um chaotic and ambiguous ones out there there's a term vuca um if if any people that are unfamiliar with it vuca so the types of operations that we're thrust into are are, are all very vuca um, and therefore our training has to represent that, right? And so we do our best to prepare our people, or uh, used to, I, I used to, I should say, and 
our training had to represent the kind of challenges and uncertainties uh, and ambiguous nature of stuff that we would get, we'd be asking our people to do. And so we would have lots of experiences where we're going into somewhere blind and high levels of stress were applied in our training at the right stages. And when that is the case, you get a certain understanding yourself of how you react in these certain situations. So all the time you're building up your own knowledge and experiences in this field. So, but still there are going to be times operationally when consequence you can't replicate consequence when ultimately lives, both us and forever we're working with and against, are on the line. And with that consequence comes internalization of that pressure and anxiety and, and fear. Um, and so what do we do with that? Well, we personally, um, again, early on in my career, I learned various different ways to manage that. Later on in my career, through... Um, um, a number of people that got brought into the organization to help us with this a little bit. We started to talk about this a lot better. So early on in my career, no one told me, no one ever sat me down and said, this is what it's going to feel like in a firefight, Gaz. No one ever. Now, this is where we were putting our people into. It strikes me as crazy now that this wasn't something that we were doing versus towards the end of our career, the new people are coming in. Well, this is this is experiences that we can share with them. Now, there is always going to be that first time you're in a situation and the reality of it hits you. And, you know, we can prepare people up to a point. Now, they'll gain their experiences from that point. Two things I'll say. Firstly, there are absolutely people that joined my career that experienced that kind of situation and said, hands up, do you know what, this, this isn't for me. And I'm, I'm probably going to check out now and go back to their unit or actually maybe in some cases even leave the military. And that's okay. You know, I think at the time I probably was probably over judgmental on that. I myself, you know, stayed the course and learned what I needed to learn to cope with those stressful situations. And, and some of that was, um, you know, um, like we said earlier, some of the psychological strengths that people in these organizations have, the people that stay the course partly learn these things. We now coach this or coach this into um, the training in itself, but these, this might be breathing strategies. It might be visualization. It might be understanding self-talk better. It might be using anchors uh, and all kinds of other psychological tools um, and mental skills training to help our people deal with that kind of situation. So it's, I'd say it's very situation dependent, Keith, but ultimately um, there are a number of processes given the situation that we can lean on. Mm. So a situation, it's yep. quite, it's a dangerous situation. There's bullets flying here, there and everywhere. You're coming off a skid of an helicopter uh, or about to, or you're abseiling, whatever the situation may be, but it's a dangerous situation. It's life-threatening. Do you, do you get yourself in it? Because you mentioned visualisation, you mentioned self-talk, you mentioned mental skills, really. Do you actually get yourself into a state pre? Because you can't be going out there and it's, you know, it's gung go because otherwise the your life's at, your life's at threat and, and other people's lives at threat. So are you getting yourself mentally prepped in advance where you're breathing and you're calming yourself down really for the event to occur? 
Yeah. So th this is this is something that I help teams with now. Like humans' biggest fear, if across the whole world, uh, certainly the Western world, is public speaking. Right. They, death is number three on the list. Right. So there's a lot of people, which is just bizarre, but. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that recognize this fear moment of when you're about to do something. And, and I, I use the word fear and, and we can unpick that a little bit if you like. Um, so in answer to your question, and so people listening going, I just can't appreciate that. Well, the, the feelings you get when you're going, let's say you're going underprepared into a public talk and there's going to be 200 people, put yourself there. That, you know, you're going to be like, well, there's a high chance I'm going to make an absolute idiot of myself here, right? So put ourselves there. So we, like early on in my career, those kind of situations where consequence was was ramped up, appreciated. It's you know my life was on the line, and I've got experiences where friends of mine, exactly as you described, Keith, ran off the back of the helicopter. A good friend of mine, Mike Jones, unfortunately shot in the head, killed instantly. And when you've been aware of that, and when you've kind of that is the consequence. You now there's nothing that he could have done in that situation. Okay, so how you then prepare yourself for the next time that you're doing something similar. Okay. Uh, I'll be honest. The next time after I'd heard about that, I wasn't there with, with Mike's situation, but when, when, um, when I'd heard about that and I next ran off, this was in my mind and my performance was massively affected. If I'm honest by th this over, I'll use the word arousal. You know, we're talking about the stress response. It's arousal. And, and for some people that will uh, be, mean different things, but the correct term is, is arousal. You know, I was way too uh, uh, amped up and uh, my performance was shocking. Now, nothing catastrophic happened. A number of things did happen, i.e. I got in a bit of ribbon from people that I really cared about, my teammates. Um, and afterwards, I got a good chance to reflect on how I didn't perform as well as I wanted to. Now, again, I could have put my hand up and said, you know what, this isn't going to work for me. I, I, I'm, 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 I'm going to check out and, and not continue to progress. Well, I, I didn't. I, I worked on the things. I reflected I, and I, I did the things. Um, and as I, to do that, I learned a number of sequences to help me. And like I said, there was a point later on in my career, a performance psychologist came on and I was one of the most, came in, I was one of the most experienced people in the room at the time. He said, Gaz, what do you do when you're in the back of the helicopter flying to an area um, and, you know, you've got all this time to think, what do you do? And I thought to myself, that's a flipping brilliant question. No one's ever asked me that before. And I'd never shared that as a leader. I'd never shared what I was doing. Now, how short-sighted? Um, so, in, again, I'll get back to your answer in a minute, Keith, but the there are different stages to this. There's, you know, we might be going, let's say a hostage rescue situation. You might have a, you're going to have a, um, a period of time in the buildup where you're gathering information and your thoughts on how this might go is going to evolve. And you can, you can, you know, your mind will go all over the place there. Um, there's then the, the orders process and you'll hear there's, we've got intelligence departments, we've got um, manning departments, we've got all these groups of people that are going to input into the plan. And I can assure you the intelligence department that we choose that are, are employed to do that job, do give you the best information they can. So you're normally fully aware of how bad the situation, there's always two things that we're told in a set of orders. You're always told, uh, and of, there's a number of things you're always told, but there's two things that I always 
I'm listening to, most the enemy's most likely course of action. So what are the people that you're going to try and um, detain or whatever? What's the most likely thing that they're going to do? And I'm telling you, that's normally quite bad. We're, we wouldn't be getting asked if it, if it was okay to do the job. Now, additionally to that, there's the enemy's most dangerous course of action. So what is the extreme version of what the intelligence department can think of and our experiences of what we're going to be faced with? So from that moment, you've got a real clear picture of the worst case scenario, and we can plan against that. That's why we're told it. So we can plan against it. Um, so that, then that can set the wheels turning as well. You've then got your time it takes to get to where you need to go. That might be 24 hours, that might be two hours, that might be 15 minutes. It's going to be situation dependent, but there's all stress is always in the gaps. Stress is always when you've got time to think. When you're in your flow, when you're in your focus, when you're actually running off the back of the helicopter, very little negative stress. There's very little uh, over arousal. You are in your flow, you're doing what you need to do. It's the time when you're sat in the back of the helicopter in the dark and it's windy and you're on your own, you've got your ear cans on. And that's, again, where I personally chose to do a number of things. It might be listening to music. It might be, um, again, depending on what stage we're at in the flight, like 10 minutes to go. I've got various sequences with my kit and equipment to go through. Two minutes to go, I might start visualizing what I'm going to do when the helicopter lands and run off the back. So again, there's various different stages to this, but um, ultimately, yes, we can build in um, coaching, we can uh, train people in um, how to deal with that stress better. I I've likened this to, um, I've spoken um, before the first lockdown, actually, to the England football coaches around this, you know, and I likened what we're talking about to taking a penalty in a World Cup final, you know, this is a lot, there's a lot of consequence, there's high consequence. And I use the example of being stood on the tail ramp of a an aircraft about to parachute into a hostage rescue situation at night. Afterwards, one of the coaches pulled me to one side. You'll, you'll know him. Pulled me to one side. He says, Gaz, I know you said it's like taking a penalty in the World Cup final, but, but it's just not, is it? Because you're, the consequence that you got is A, B, and C. And I said, well, I, I do appreciate what you're saying, but what you're also unsighted to, like I would be unsighted to with the person stood taking the penalty in the World Cup final, is all the single days of training that we've had building up to that point where do you know what I'm the person stood on the tail ramp and and I'm looking around going well if it's not me then who I am prepared to do this and I am I've got all the experiences that I could get up to this point to be competent and confident in doing what it is we're about to do so there are you know, when we don't understand the full picture, we assume there's this huge difference in what we're doing. The reality is very different. The reality is it's normally just a little bit more than you've ever done before. It's normally a little bit different to the challenge that you've, a similar challenge that you've faced before. And, and with that isn't too much complexity. It's certainly not overwhelming. So early days in your career, you're going to be met with a, a dozens of overwhelming experiences in, in some cases. As you get more experienced, a few more gray hairs on your beard, you uh, you you learn to adapt and you uh, you can deal with this pressure in a different way and and use it to your advantage. Actually, the feeling of getting onto the back of a helicopter, you can channel that and you can use it to uh, optimize what you do. Absolutely, guys. I've I've done research. Or I've been reading into and writing a little bit about emotional intelligence and the importance of it. Now, and from my side, more in a sports 
context or in a business context that about being self-aware of your own emotions, having the ability to recognize and understand your emotions. And then nextly being able to regulate those emotions. So you're in a bad mood and you're aware of them, but then also being able to regulate that emotion before you act on it. So from your side, I have no doubt that you've, you've been in situations or you've experienced things where things probably haven't gone to plan. And you mentioned then you, you had a dear friend who, who got shot and killed. And, and I know you mentioned you weren't there in that particular situation, but when things go wrong, because they're not always going to go to plan, when things go wrong, how important was it for you to keep control of your emotions in those situations? And, and really, I guess, another, how difficult was it to do that? Um, again, I'm, I'm talking to you today from an experience where I'm, I'm 22 years of service doing this kind of stuff. And so uh, I, I'm, I'm very aware that I'm now talking from a place of experience where how can I remember what it was like when I was experiencing this? It's quite difficult, actually. But I do remember a number of situations where things went really bad. And it was me looking to, again, I, I talk to people about team and, and organizations and culture and my old teams my old we, we we genuinely relied on each other so there was always that awareness that if you were not in the case in the question you've asked if you weren't um, managing yourself well then and you had a bad day and, and again we're human people will have a bad day and things won't go perfectly then there would be always be teammates around you that regardless of how poor your performance that would, would catch that and they would cover that and they would do what they needed to do to um, give you the immediate feedback to try and change it. But then also we'd have a process at the end of the exercise where we do a, a, a hot debrief and then further debriefs afterwards of how things went so we could self-reflect and improve. So, you know, as an individual on a, on a, on a kind of, regulating self uh, emotional control level yeah there's incredibly taxing and and one of the things that again we are you know very clear of is always our goal we call it a mission so we're always very clear of what we're trying to achieve and the people you know being very self-disciplined being very conscientious um, are always aiming at trying to achieve, steer everything towards what this mission is. Now, again, I work with sports teams and, and you often find in sports teams that people are being quite self-servant. Like we typically don't get those kind of people in our organization and we're, we're all very mission orientated. So when things aren't going to plan, you know, you have that, we used to call it a Hamlet moment. You have that, you know, that Hamlet moment where you can take that pause what's going wrong here right okay actually this is what we're trying to achieve reset and again you know call it an anchor you know what like, what is it that we're trying to achieve right reset myself I, I am and I, again I'll give you a situation I was um it's always best to tell this with a story isn't it so um I was towards the end of an, an operational cycle so we'd, we'd been um we'd been out in Afghanistan for oh, maybe six months at least and very experienced at that stage and I was um well sorry 
by the end of that tour, it was my first tour. And um, what I'd gained an awful lot of experiences, I'd gone from zero to hero in my mind um, and very competent. I'd actually been asked to step up to team leader, so confidence was through the roof. And uh, a certain operation came in, there was no real notice to do an awful lot of deep planning on it. The boss came in and asked the team leaders, like, this is the situation, do you think we should go and do it? immediately because of how good a period of time we've been having and how well everything had gone up to that point um we said yeah let's let's go and do it and we we'd taken too much risk way too much risk long story short we ended up landing in daylight um uh, about three three or four hundred meters away from this this car that we weren't sure how many occupants we weren't sure of the surrounding area semantics etc but we were high on confidence and we went in Long story short, we got we got ambushed, daylight ambush, stuck in the middle of nowhere. To try and describe it, there was a mountain in front of us. Behind me was a, a, a plain, desert plain. Um, I, I felt like a dog turd on a snooker table. That's what I felt like. I was just, it, it was so overexposed. Um, and literally the, the bullets were zipping around. The sand around me was popping. And there was this mountainside just opened up on us. So we were in, we were in a bad place. And fortunately, again, we have various different plans for that, actually, um, as ridiculous as that might, might sound. And we just went into autopilot with a particular maneuver and managed to get out of that situation. As we got out of that situation, you've got to understand, for about 15, 20 minutes, I thought I was going to die. Genuinely, I then reached a group of friends, colleagues that hadn't been in as quite as intense a situation. I was going in there amped up. And uh, this is what I mean about kind of regulating each other. I, I remember one of the senior guys, so he'd been in that situation a dozen more times than me, said to me, Gaz, chill out. And I remember it like that. My life had been on the line for 15, 20 minutes. And the power of those words of, Gaz, just chill out. It wasn't a situation to be chilled in. He knew that. But actually, what he also knew that I needed to be told that, you know, you're way too high at the minute. You're not performing at your best when you're you're up there, right? And so, the power of communication from respected teams and, and uh, colleagues, etc., is 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 critical. And and I still remember that now. It's it's flipping twelve years ago, ten years ago, something like that. But that that those words from the per, the particular person um, had an impact on me, and it was like, yeah, fair one. I, I need to chill during, out a bit. During that time, or during those times when in life or death situations where bullets have cracked and flew around you. I'm curious to find out a little bit more about what let you know how to accurately navigate these life-threatening moments because you could have gone left, right, old, retreat. Yep. Explain. Yeah. How to navigate around that. Yeah, so experiences times a thousand equals experienced right so our training like i said represents uh, as well as we can the reality of the situation that we're going to face and so the more intense the more realistic we can make our training the better and we we sought that we sought that in our training we were well invested in to um help that and to make sure that happened and so there is certain things we, we, like I said, we would plan against the most dangerous course of action. So we would make plans against that. So an ambush drill, an anti-ambush drill, I should say, is something that we've practiced as a group hundreds of times uh, from, you know, and it's something that we've almost automated. So when something like that happens, it's, and again, there's so much 
the, the power of communication, certain words, um, contact left, contact right, uh, peel right, peel left, baseline, words like that mean nothing probably to your audience, but to me and some people listen, they'll go, oh, I know what that means. And when as a team, you've played and practiced that set drill hundreds of times, you, you make it happen. And this, and there isn't, sometimes there isn't a different way to get out of that situation. It's a novel situation, but there's not a novel way at the time to get out of it. You, you just have to go with a set plan. There isn't time to formulate a plan in that situation sometimes. And so you run that pattern. Now, there's always, I'll caveat that, there's always um, opportunity within to change the plan. And if someone in a better place is in a position to make a better call, then that can always happen too. So we practice that. And all the time we're practicing this. So when it happens for real, you've built in automation. That automation, again, we're talking neuroscience here, we're talking myelin, we're talking uh, neuropathways, affords you thinking capacity to be more agile with the problem. And so as you become more experienced, actually, yes, these situations are or can be very life-threatening, but when you've been in them 50 times and it's not, the consequences hasn't been that you've been very seriously hurt, you learn to, well, actually, I've still got thinking room here and I want to make sure I want to make the right room, make, make the right decision. And so we, and that that's born out of the training being as realistic as possible. And it's born out of the intensity and the effort that we take to go in into our training and practice um, so that when, you know, we train hard, fight easy, you know, it's a thing that most teams will be familiar with, train hard, fight easy. Do you practice it? Do you practice that mantra? Because we did. And we would practice that to the nth degree. You know, training was more often harder than the reality. Um, now, I'm going to throw something out there and I want to get you, I, want to, I don't know whether it's going to provoke her otherwise, but I'm going to throw it out there. So here's a little hand grenade. Uh, I've took the pin out and it's, and it's on its way. I'm used to dealing with this. It's fine, Keith. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I I'm not a lover that teams exist. Yeah. I don't believe teams exist. Uh, I'd be interested in your thoughts around that. And I'm certainly interested in anything that you can throw back at that. Okay. So you're getting the hand grenade right back at you, Keith, I'll be honest. So like I, the first thing I'd say to you is what do you mean by team? Be because I've got a, a real clear idea of what team means to me. And so I know that teams exist. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not unsure about that response. So for me, a team is a group of people that rely on each other. For me, that's a definition of a team. And I've existed, lived, worked in, trusted in teams that have relied on each other. And so I know that as there's various different experiences in my life where I couldn't have done that alone. More often than not with what we were doing, I couldn't have done that alone. So to say that teams don't exist, I'd say no. Like a team of people that don't rely on each other, there's a lot of people that work together. They're groups of people and they're not, they're, you know, you look at sales teams, you know, quite often sales teams in business, they, they're, they're not teams. They call themselves teams, but they're not teams because they're all comparing themselves against each other and who can be highest up the ladder. And, and that's a group, that is a, that's a group of people. So teams in my mind do exist. And um, I've been lucky enough to spend many years working in some of the best. 
we use the term, don't we? We, we title it as team. But yet the left hand and the right hand doesn't know what's taking place. So we can link in with business. And even though you're working under the same umbrella or same badge or same titles, it, the, because of the, I guess, the quality of the communication, the effectiveness of that they're, they're after, and then obviously the efficiency of it, ultimately has an impact on the outcome. Yeah, well, I'm, I'd absolutely agree. My experiences are that, um, you know, these these teams learn and grow together. That's 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 the necessity. They've, they've got to be agile. They've got to be able to adapt, and uh, that's what a good team will do. So, what do great teams do to stay great? Yeah, I, I, I think exactly what I've just said. They've got to they've got to be prepared to evolve. Um, one of the ethoses of special forces is a con constant pursuit of excellence. Okay, so. The, the, the ultimate goal we will probably never achieve like actual excellence you know is you know that that pinnacle we're always chasing it so we're always looking to adapt to evolve and to change we need to because the operations you know uh, and you know myself you know really and what I do now the adapting into what I do now with regards to my business and whether around um, applying these principles to other organizations and teams and individuals, you know, I've had to adapt and I've had to adapt my uh, language and I've got to understand the ground truth of the teams and the organizations that I'm working with. So we always have to learn and adapt. And I, I think the best teams have that constant pursuit of excellence and they know that if they're ever stale, sorry, if they're ever still, they're getting stale and, and that's not a place that the best teams want to be. Gaz, you lived in a frenetic world. So it was, there was all kinds of stuff going on and you were also a leader in that world. So you held multiple leadership roles and were at the top of the field. How did you find the balance between leading others and being productive? Yeah, uh, I'm a father and a husband to four children um, right now. So I'd argue I've, I've, I, I, I live in a more frenetic world now. Um, so... In line with, the, I mean, I jest, but that's the reality. I, I think I've always been someone that has, I like to be busy. So, you know, I, I am, when we talk about experiences times a thousand, I, you know, I'm, I'm always very active and I've got a number of plates spinning. Okay. I, I like that. I, I thrive on that. I don't like to stand still. I don't like to um, just have that one iron in the fire, so to speak, you know, there's, there's this, it becomes, I'd be quickly become stale, like, you know, know thyself. I've said it before. Socrates famously said it or, and we, we need to understand ourselves and what are our strengths. And so, you know, I, I enjoy um, having a lot on. And so that is in part why I ended up what I, what, what I did, but also the environment of where I spent a long time, Yes, was always very busy. There's been a number of times in my careers when I've, um, I've stepped out of it. You know, the recruitment job's a good example, actually, where you're stepping off what I would describe, like the squadron tempo of operations when you're in it. And I was in it for the best part of 15 years, 14, 15 years. So very operationally busy. Stepping off that train, it's a fast-moving train. And that you realize just how fast life is moving when you're off it. When you're on it, it's just normal, and you haven't got time to think on about a number of things. Um, I, I do help people now try and get balance, and there's a lot of people in the business world that are 
work and sport world that are working at a thousand miles an hour. Sometimes you need to create a circuit breaker to that, to look at how you're working and go, is that optimal? And for, for a lot of the time, just constantly pursuing that. If you're surrounded by a, a reliable team, then yeah, absolutely. You can keep working at that pace, but there needs to be in and outflow with that team because people need to be rested. Now, as an individual, you know, I, I, I've, I've realized that and I know how, where my capacities are and I've, I've got a clearer idea where my capacities are and I try and work to them and I try and help other people get feedback on that themselves. So, you know, I think practice working at high tempo, I, I like to now work in sprints. So, you know, I can for short periods of time, you know, go, go hard. Um, and I also then know that if I'm working like that, I'm going to need some few days here and there to just pause and to refresh recoup family times like vital to me the reason i left the military was to try and give my family more time and uh, if that, if i could summarize what i was seeking when i left the military which was a couple of years ago is that word balance i was trying to have more balance because life was so work orientated which was uh, frantic and frenetic um but that wasn't easy to balance and for uh, longevity and for sanity for me with as a father to four children with a, a, a loving wife you know I, I didn't want that and I and I I knew that I needed to make adjustments and and you know I get my wife on she'll still tell you I, I'm too busy I, I work too hard but that's part of who I am you know let's be honest I'm I'm a self-disciplined person I'm pretty resilient to lots of things coming in and you know I uh I deal with that quite well most of the time, not always perfectly, but so I, I, I know myself and I, and I like to keep busy, but I also know when I'm working too hard, there needs to be some circuit breakers built in, or if I'm, um, if I'm almost flatlining with, with busyness, then I, I need to find that next project to kind of get my, get my foot down and work hard on it because that's how I work best. Mm. We had Greg Levine, on the podcast and he actually said something that that you mentioned then short sprints over prolonged jogs so when he was with mclaren it was a thing about doing these short sprints for the team rather than having prolonged jogs so that people get burned out and i just find it really interesting that you've you've just said the same thing in in your world now one thing i'm going to ask you talk about self discipline what happens when you don't want to do something? So today, before you came on the podcast, you mentioned that you wanted to go for a jog or not that you wanted to, that you went for a jog. So you went for a long jog, you came in, you were still sweating, took a cold shower. Tomorrow you wake up and you don't want to do the jog. Yeah, what do you do? Yeah, that, that's, that's life, isn't it? Right. So no, I am. Um, it's a great question. You know, what, you know, for me and one of the things that, um, we work pretty hard on and this is born out of my experiences you know we were very goal focused so but um was it victor frankel that said um a man with a strong enough why will will suffer anyhow or words to that effect you know will burden anyhow so if there's something powerful enough that you are working towards you like we are like this body of ours this mind of ours um, combination of both is way more resilient and hard wearing than we think it is. And so if we're disciplined, that's the wrong word. If we're strong enough in our reason why we're doing something, 
we, we will get there if, if you want it enough. Now, if you're struggling with motivation, I would reverse engineer that and say, well, what is it that you're aiming at? So I, so again, as an example, uh, a number of um, months ago now, I, I challenged myself in lockdown to just, again, I'm going to sound mental saying it, but I just, it was during lockdown and I challenged myself, well, how far can you run in six hours? It was just this harebrained idea. There was an event that got canceled that I'd volunteered for. They'd canceled it because of lockdown. And on this day, when it was due to be ran, it was, it was a six hour event around these laps and you just see how far you could go. And I thought, I'm still going to do it. So I did it locally um, with a friend and it was purely there to see about myself and see what different stresses and ways of coping with that and to keep myself wintered and to keep myself disciplined in the things that I need to be doing. So I challenge myself still. Um, but that goal, having that goal, made me for the weeks and months prior, get out of my bed on the cold winter mornings and actually go and do what I needed to do. Subsequently, after I'd finished that target, I did was a little bit aimless again. I was just a bit loose with my training. I'm, I, you know, I, I'd still like to keep fit. Um, I'm playing the long game though. I'm, I'm, what am I looking for? I'm looking for longevity now. And, and so I was just a bit aimless and I was like, I'm just not really feeling motivated for, and I've got a garage gym and I was doing some stuff and I was like, that's a bit half-hearted. I didn't have anything in the diary that was kind of drawing me to it. And so when you're feeling undisciplined and when you're not feeling motivated, I'd say, I'd question your goal and how much more focus do you need on what you're trying to achieve? Because taking a team of people let's say the England football team going into the Euros right now, for example, how much do they really want it, you know, and how real is it to them that they think they can get it? Because as they get closer, they'll get more hungry for it. And so it's that discipline that they'll need to, or that motivation they need is that goal. And working on that goal setting uh, is, is critical. And it's something that I always get people to focus on. So if you're feeling unmotivated, question your goal first and foremost. There are always, again, that self-awareness, of and, and self-reflection of like why am I feeling unmotivated like what can I do to make that sh shorten that journey to where I'm getting out the door and doing what needs to be done so with a morning run session um, get your gym kit lined out next to the bed so when you're stepping out of your bed, you're not going to go rummaging around in the dark for your shorts. They're there. You, you, you're still half asleep. You slide them on, you get your trainers on, you go down, you have a glass of water, whatever your routine is, and you're just out the door. Once you're out the door, you ain't ever turning back, but just getting to the door is the most difficult stage. So how can we shorten that? Again, something I work with people on in all kinds of goal setting, but um, yeah, there's, there's, there's habits and there's discipline and there's two very different things there the power of the why the why is big enough the human soul will drive to it'll get magnetized to move closer to it which is uh, which is which is great now on the flip of that yes imposter syndrome now yeah. imposter syndrome it's a psychological pattern in which an individual doubts the skills the talents or even their accomplishments now, despite these external evidence of their competence, those experiencing this phenomenon remain convinced that their frauds don't deserve the accolade or the achievement. Is there any part of your career where you've experienced that, where you've experienced imposter syndrome? Yeah, I'd, um, I'd change that question around, Keith, if I'm honest, and say, is there any part of my career when I've not experienced it? 
It's so common. Um, and again, this is something I work with people on a daily basis and give them context and perspectives from my experiences. Um, my old organization, when you joined it, you, there was a lot asked of you instantly. That gives you this growth. And so, again, if we're left our own devices on selecting what, how much we bite off, we often make us keep ourselves comfortable and make it comfortable. But our organization knew that to get the best out of people for exponential growth, you need to really challenge people and their thinking. And so the day that you join up, you'll be given responsibility that are beyond your wildest imagination. You're like, Panek, this is asking a lot of me. But, and you feel that, well, I don't know if I can do this then you navigate that yourself. And then you learn, actually, do you know what? I don't know what I was worried about. You know, this, you know, and I remember I was given this box of optics when I first joined. Um, it's worth a few million quid. And it was the group's optics for various different nighttime stuff. And my job was to keep account and make sure that the service, if anyone's got any problems with them, let me know and manage all that. Like pretty mundane kind of um trivial not a trivial job but it was very logistical really and but that was responsibility and I was like flip being heck this is what a responsibility and I was like I'm not sure of this and you know again what do you do with that well you navigate it you seek advice from people that have done it before you do all kinds of things fast forward 10 years um, and I'm being asked or in fact five years and I'm being asked to be a team leader very early on in my career in a really crunchy part of the world and I was like, I don't, why are they asking me, you know, and, and why am I being the person that's been, and so imposter syndrome there. And then again, you seek advice, you speak to the people that have selected you, you speak to your peers around you that you trust and you get that feedback and you try and you do, and you realize, you know what, I, I can do this. And so what imposter syndrome is for me, and again, this isn't going to be a, um, a dictionary definition, but what imposter syndrome is, is that those butterflies, that fear of the challenge that you're perceiving in front of you is a little bit higher than, than what you would prefer. Um, and that's this narrative that you're playing in your head. That, that isn't real. That is a movie narrative that you're playing and you're seeing the consequences. And there's, there's all kinds of research as to why this, why this happens in the first place. But it's good for our protection and survival in many ways that we don't stretch ourselves too much and we stay within our comfort zone of and, and social acceptance etc as, as a as a group of people now we also need we also know that for growth we we need to get out of that comfort zone we need to be pushed out of that sometimes and that's going to feel uncomfortable but there's more learning there there's there's way more learning there and and that's what as an organization we um we challenge people on and we we seek we seek to uh or say we did and myself now that's exactly what i do i i give people the perspectives look you, this fear you're having about this project that you're managing at the minute you know it's, it's it feels too much and you're spinning a lot of plates look trust me i've been there this is what we can do this is who you need to speak to do you have people like this that you can lean into can you delegate you know ask these questions of the people in the situation and, and they learn to navigate it six months down the line you know, they're, you know, I can't believe I was sweating that. I'm doing that on a daily basis now. But that's that's growth and that's what we're looking for. And it's always, it's, we should seek that feeling, if I'm perfectly honest, because that's what being outside of your comfort zone feels like. And if we're not feeling that, then we're probably not challenging ourselves enough. Hmm. The mind is a, 
a powerful tool. And you mentioned, we've spoke about it a few times, Gaz, the people create images or they create videos in the head that maybe don't exist, that aren't real, that cause fear or cause them to be held back. And those videos, those images, and especially the videos, a lot of them are geared around senses. So you can see certain things playing out. You can hear things. Sometimes you can actually taste or smell and you get people, I don't feel good about it. It makes me feel scared or whatever it may be. So a lot of those things are linked to obviously the brain, but the senses that you have. Now I'm going to link this question now to where I'm going. Have you ever gone through experience where you've had a, a sixth sense that's kicked in? So obviously we, we do see, we hear, we taste, we smell and we feel, but sometimes there are certain things that happen that I guess you just can't explain. Have you ever been through that? So there's a number of situations that jump to mind. So like, do I believe in sixth sense? Now, like for me, sixth sense, we've, we've got the senses we've got, right? This, this is all we've got that we're aware of. Um, gut instinct as well, you know, and, and what for me, like for me, what that is, is like, we are, we are visually dominant, aren't we? So most people are so visually dominant in, in how they see things. Now, there are lots, there's, you know, other, other senses that we're always taking on board. Now, what we don't always become super aware of is what those effects are. And I'll give you an example. So a few years ago, we were running through a scenario in a, in a training scenario with a performance psychologist and uh, the same guy that asked me about the, what I was feeling when I was on the back of a helicopter. And um, in fact, I mentioned a guy called Andy McCann. He's worked with the Welsh rugby team formerly. He's a, he's a great guy. And I do, I do a bit of work with him now as well. Um, and he's, he, he said, like, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to, I'm going to turn the lights down in the room. There's, there's a room full of us. I'm going to play a piece of music or a bit of noise on, a, on, a, on his laptop. And I want you to tell me where, where it takes you. He pressed play. And now this, what to you would be a helicopter noise. Um, and people just listened. And then he sort of stopped the recording and turned the lights up. And he says, right, he said, and he came around to me. He said, guys, again, some other people had answered and they'd given various different examples. But again, I was one of the most experienced people in the room. Now I'd said to him, I, I know what helicopter that is. I know that it's on hard standing rather than soft standing because of the the noise and I know that it's preparing to to lift and 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 actually what I'm really surprised at Andy is I'm sat here now and my palms are getting sweaty from hearing it just hearing it and I've never experienced that before so I've thought about this a little bit and that and I I I'd normally be going with that sound that would be me walking onto the back of a helicopter, preparing to do something that I know would require a certain something from me. Um, I'd always be, normally be wearing gloves in that situation. What chance have I got to feel the, my body getting prepared for this challenge that it was about to face, undoubtedly, whether in training, because it's realistic, or whether it's operational. Um, so I'd sat in a classroom in a stale environment and I'd feel my palms sweating. I was like, is this, is this me? 
over-anxious, it's a stress response. Well, yeah, it is a stress response for a challenge that my body has learned it's about to take. Now, I didn't have gloves on, I could communicate that. I'd become aware of this extra sense and this, uh, of my touch of, of that I'd not been aware of before. And so sixth sense, I would say no, but certainly gut feeling of being in a situation that is, that just feels wrong. And again, reverting back to that ambush situation, before it all went noisy, it felt really wrong. And there's a reason it felt wrong, because it was wrong. And there were certain cues that I couldn't put my finger on now exactly what that was. But my body was seeing it, my body was hearing it, my body was feeling it, and I was commu- that was being communicated to my brain, um, all that those external senses. And that game, and whether that was gut feeling, whether that was anything, it was experiences, and it was just, this doesn't feel right. And I've done a, um, a year of my career, early days in the Marines over in Northern Ireland, and we used to go around, walk, support the police over there, the Northern Ireland Police Service, and um, we used to help them, and, and we would always be taught to the, look for the, the presence of the abnormal or the absence of the normal. That would be something we, we trained to do. And so if something stood out, this doesn't feel right. It, there's something not right about it. There's no pedestrians. Why is there no pedestrians? Okay, that tells us something. That's information. That's feedback. We can't be ignorant to that. I've, I've applied that throughout my career. And though those experiences I've, I've lent into, and it's about senses. And so we're, we're so that, I hope that answers your question, but that's certainly my take on it. Yeah, and it's an interesting one, Gaz, where you, you're firing off a stimulus response through external sources. So listening where you can be sat down in a room and you can hear a helicopter and you'll be able to be able to gauge whether you're actually in the air or on the deck only based off past experience. Because again, from experiences, past experiences, which provide feedback. And it's the feedback mechanism on how you reflect on that experience, which will determine how you then represent that, that reality. Now, I'm mindful of time for you, and I'm respectful of it, but I've got one and one final question for you. you you've spent quite a, a chunk of your life in the military, but when you reflect back on your time now, during the time in the Special Forces and prior to that, you were in the Marines, what's been the greatest skill set military life has taught you? Well, this is the hand grenade that you mentioned earlier. This is Keith. Um, I'll be honest, what, what first comes to my mind um, is part of my um, military transition. We went to a number of workshops and there was these business leaders came in offering, they were just, they were there volunteers to try and help us ultimately, which is a great, great bonus. And one of, there was this lady from uh, Standard Life, um, big company. And she was, she's one of the leaders from it, one of the COO, I think. And she was like, um, have you ever been in that situation where you've been cannonballed into a job and you just have, you feel you haven't been prepared how to do it and you've just got to work it out. And I was like, yeah, genuinely, that is every single job I've ever had. I've never felt like I have had enough training to be given that role and responsibility. Um, and I mean that wholeheartedly. And it's not because they, they, 
there just isn't the time. There isn't the, the, the depth of training that you would need to know everything about it. We expect people to learn quickly. That's so I think the greatest skill that I've, I've, my career has, has taught me and it continues to do that. It's still something that I, I do that, you know, my own podcast, I started it with very little idea. Running a business, I had no idea how to start a business when I first um, started thinking about it. I thought that you had to register your business at the customs house, which is com- it's called the company's house. Customs house is an old pub in pool that I used to frequent when I was in my younger days. And so that's how little I knew, right? So um, I... I just, um, I am prepared. My, my career and still does con- continually, I challenge myself with new experiences and I am prepared to start something that I don't always know how I'm going to get the job done. I don't wait for green lights in everything. I like green lights to start something, but I don't wait for green lights all the way to the end to get involved. And that, whether that's adaptability, whether that's agility, um, um, it's it's relying on my own attributes, I think. And you know, we can you can train yourself to whatever level in whatever your domain is, your whatever your sector is. But sometimes you're just going to have to lean on you. And well, you need to be, be sure that you've tested you, and you need to be sure you know who you is in various different situations. And there's a word that comes to mind here, and it's just both David and I we. Uh co-authored a book and it's got authenticity authentic all over it uh, and their authenticity shines through certainly through this this podcast this episode with yourself and uh, and I know you we've had previous conversations around the word authenticity but you brought it up on our very first conversation and it, it shines through here uh, and I I've sort of interrupted David here because I know he's he's going to thank you and I'll let you do that now, David, but I just wanted to thank you uh, uh, for just being thy authentic self. I appreciate that, Keith. I do appreciate the comments. Just for people listening and for yourselves, we spoke earlier about imposter syndrome and when, like, again, I, I didn't come into this. I was sweating when I came into this because I'd been for a run. I wasn't sweating because I was nervous. I was excited people get confused between the two because I'm I'm passionate about this subject, right? I'm passionate about helping people develop and understand the the common areas to all of this, whether you're in sport, business, the military, whatever. Now, if you're being authentic, if you're being honest yourself and you know yourself, then you, you, you don't feel that imposter syndrome. That's when it doesn't appear because you know that whatever I knew you could have thrown me some swerve balls and some of the questions I, I wasn't, I wasn't, um, I hadn't given any thought before you said it, but the, the authenticity is just being honest with yourself, isn't it? And, and I think I implore people to, you know, cause Instagram, social media, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lack of authenticity out there because people are often trying to sell something. And whenever anyone's trying to sell something, there's uh, it's not as authentic as, as it could be. And so just, ensure that people are learning as much about themselves as they can stick to your lane be as honest with yourself as you can um, seek feedback and and those things like imposter syndrome then then they're still there they're noises they're ir- your inner critics always going to be there but we we manage them much better so now i appreciate your comments keith but it's it's part of 
the message with me actually of just just being open and honest and and just keeps keeping it real as some people would recognize i like that <clears throat> keep it real well we had we had a list list of questions guys and i don't even think we've covered half of them like we've, we've genuinely just gone all over the place and my fascination for what you've done and the things that you can share with people uh, I could have stayed on here for another couple of hours like I genuinely I'm just sat here glued to the screen and I know that there's a question that we're right I gotta ask a question and we just we've just gone all over the place really and I've got to thank you for coming on. It's been, it's been unbelievable. I truly just having you on and, and having you share your stories. Uh, we talk about the word elite. I think the word elite gets thrown around a lot. You've got an elite athlete uh, and this, that, and the other. You are truly elite in the world in terms of the things that you've done. And, um, I think it's important for us to recognize that, that what you've achieved and what you have gone through is something that there are so many lessons in there that, that can be shared and taught for people around the world. And I have no doubt that those that are listening on this podcast will have taken a lot from you today. So again, I got to thank you. We really appreciate you being on and keep sprinkling the gold dust. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks guys. It's genuinely a pleasure. And, you know, you've, you've, you've really answered as to why I like to uh, talk about this with other people, because, you know, that you use the word elite. Uh, there's absolutely no way on earth I would ever describe myself as that. Um, uh, and that isn't, no one's ever humble that says they're humble, are they, either? But, uh, you know, it's, you know, I, we're very general. It's genuinely the experiences that we have, which give us particular insight. And it's the same, whether whatever your background. So, um, in many ways and obviously there's differences but the, what happens inside and inside here and inside here is, is very similar so it's been a genuine pleasure lads it's it's it's, it's a topic I, I do enjoy kicking around so uh yeah i'm glad that hopefully people have got something from it. thanks for tuning into the golders podcast today if you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast, and also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody.